Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I have a really important question for you. And that question is... <gasps> what is it? What is your relationship with ghosts? Wow, what a great question, Hannah. My goodness. Thank you. I came up with it myself. Um, I would say that my relationship with ghosts is reluctant. What's yours? <laughs> No, i sorry, I can't answer until you explain more what it means <laughs> to have a reluctant relationship with ghosts. I don't want to believe in them, but they keep showing up. That's not an inaccurate way to describe how I feel about ghosts. Um, my rational brain doesn't believe in them, but for listeners, I'm a Pisces. So I do a lot of like feeling instead of thinking, and I feel like there are ghosts all over the place. All over the place. I believe in my heart that I was possessed by a ghost briefly when I was in grade seven, I think, uh, just just for a day. Um, and I, it was it was consensual. I gave her the opportunity, and she took it, uh, and it was weird. How about you, Hannah? I, <laughs> I can't believe we are this many years into our friendship. And you have never once mentioned to me the one time in grade seven when you were consensually (laughs) possessed by a ghost. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a story for another time. But in short, the woman who lived in the apartment that my mom and I moved into, she passed away in the apartment. And there was no one one there to open the window right away after, after she died. And so I just believed that she continued to linger there. Her name was Iris, and there were a handful of, like, things that happened while we lived there. She was very nice. She was a nice lady. We knew her in life. And, yeah, there was just this one day when I, like, needed a favor, 
And I was like, hey, if you could do this for me, you can like be in my body for a day if you want. And then the next day I woke up and like my whole body really ached. Like I felt really sore the entire day. And I was like, I don't know. If Iris isn't currently in my body, this is one heck of a coincidence. So that's uh, that's my story, my reluctant relationship to ghosts. Wow, that doesn't sound reluctant. It sounds like you invited a ghost to ride around in your body like a mech suit, but okay. <laughs> I was just a regular old meat suit, you know? Okay, so <laughs> Hannah... Speaking of meat suits, I recently was chatting with Marshall, friend of the podcast, uh, and he jokingly said, isn't it wild to know that our ghosts are inside of us right now? And I paused and was like, no, that's not what ghosts are. And he was like, sorry, what? And I was like, Mm-mm, that's not what ghosts are. That's incorrect. So it turns out (laughs) that I have a stronger opinion about what a ghost is than I thought because I instinctively Mm -hmm. knew he was wrong. (laughs) I'm not ready to say for sure what I think ghosts are, but it turns out, and this will surprise nobody who's ever met me, that I have Mm -hmm. incredibly strong opinions about them. (laughs) Have you ever met a ghost? Mm. Okay, you know that thing where, like, when you are... A young woman going through puberty, you have a lot of experiences with the supernatural, and that's why they burned us as witches so much. Like, as a seventh grader who was briefly possessed by a ghost, I'm not sure I know what you're talking about, but, like, that sounds fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a lot of ghosts (laughs) when I was young. Yeah. I don't know. Coach looks really alarmed by this revelation. I just saw ghosts all the time. Like, I just saw ghosts all the time. And then I finally told my parents, and my mom was like, "Mm, I don't think you're seeing ghosts. And I was like, well, what's that? (laughs) So here's the question, Marcel. Was I crazy? Or was I just in touch with something else? Or secret option C? Who knows? I mean, yeah, something between B and C. You were in touch with something else. Who knows what it was? I don't know. Yeah, great, great. You weren't, but like, no, I don't believe that seeing ghosts makes a person like, not sane. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. This is, I feel about ghosts the same way I feel about everything, which is that I think our actual knowledge about them is complex and needs to contain a lot of space for multiple simultaneous truths and multiple simultaneous meanings. And also, if somebody else says something wrong about them, I'll get very mad at them. (laughs) And that is just what it's like being me, you know? Yeah. I do. I get that. It's Pisces season. Like, you think you're having a hard time? Imagine being me all the time. This is how I live. Sounds sounds hard. Yeah. It's exhausting. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's move on because I want to, uh, I want to talk more about ghosts. In the old-school Canadian literature classrooms of 2006, we learned that it is only by a lack of ghosts that Canadian writers are haunted. But here at Which Please, we reject this downright ahistorical attitude towards literature and colonialism, and prefer to dig up the past at any time when it may prove useful, which is every time. Always (laughs) historicize. (laughs) 
Anyway, we have a special guest today, and as always, we want to make a very good impression on our visiting lecturer. So let's double check that we are up to date on our homework in revision. Mm. So today's guest, Lydia Nicole, is going to introduce us to hauntology. That's hunt, as in ghosts, hauntology, as a critical tool to think through Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. This is a new theory for both of us, but fortunately, hauntology draws on a wide range of topics we've covered before. That's right. We touched on the function of ghosts, scary settings, and the monstrous as storytelling tools in Book 2, Episode 3, our episode about the Gothic. Totally forgot about that. You for- How did you forget about Goth or Noth? I don't know, but I didn't put it together with hauntology. Thank goodness you're the one doing this revision. <laughs> In our two episodes about trauma, we looked at ways we can read our characters as haunted by their past experiences. Dr. Lucia Lorenzi helped us think through the ways that trauma has structured wizarding society as a whole, and had the genius suggestion that students are sorted into four different houses based on their trauma responses. That's still (laughs) with me every day. And Dr. Addie Marion similarly walked us through an analysis of Harry as experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder in Order of the Phoenix. Given the relevance of trauma to hauntology, it won't surprise any of our listeners to learn that critical race theory and disability studies are also useful critical foundations for this discussion. Keeping in mind the frequency with which this book series uses allegories and metaphor to comment on racism, we want to think about how the past is so often used to justify or explain the present in these texts. To borrow directly from Lydia's pitch for this episode, quote, What seethes at the edges of Hogwarts? What exists within the gaps, propping things up, making things work invisibly, and how are they treated when revealed? End quote. In other words, the structural racism and ableism of the wizarding world actively haunts and terrorizes the characters. We can also draw on our episode about archives to think about the ways bureaucracy and record keeping serve the interests of the powerful and privileged. By deliberately omitting or destroying records, for example, archives are able to hide inconvenient and downright damning information about the past in order to uphold and reinforce systems of power in the present. And no conversation about haunting and Harry Potter would be complete without attending to the spectral presence of the author herself. So we'll also want to draw on our episode about celebrity and think about how media ecosystems allow for the circulation of representations of celebrity, in this case, the representation of the author as a familial and trustworthy authority on the wizarding world in spite of the hateful misinformation she spreads. Honestly, Hannah, I bet there's even more we could bring up in preparation for this episode. Oh, for sure. But sometimes you've just got to trust that you know what you know, you know? Mm, I know. So let's go meet our guest. I hear a whisper, a murmuring that I can't quite place. Is it the sound of loved ones calling to us from beyond the pale? No, it can't be. It must be our guest lecturer gearing up to teach us all about hauntology in Transfiguration class. Lydia Nicole, 
pronouns. She, her is a healthcare professional working in the field of disabilities in the UK. She recently gained her Master of Science in Psychology and Learning Disability and also has an undergrad degree in philosophy where she wrote about the intersection of queer theory and existentialism. She is currently preparing to begin her PhD. Her main areas of interest are hauntology, critical discourse analysis, critical disability studies, and most importantly, coffee. Yay. Welcome, Lydia. Hi. You okay? Welcome so much is what I was just about to say. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you also just, when you said, are you okay, you reminded me of the most frequent uh, intercultural confusion I experienced during the year I lived in the UK, which is that that is a very common turn of phrase. You okay? But in Canada, are you okay is like, you look bad. Mm. Are you okay? Yeah. And so people will constantly be like, you okay? And I would be like, why? What? <laughs> <laughs> What's, uh, do, I, do I not look okay? No, but it just means how's it going? Fun fact. In Australia, they'll say, how you going? That's confusing. I know. Anyway. Coach, take all this out. Nope. Keep it all in. Lydia, do you want to just start off by telling us a little bit about your relationship with the Harry Potter series? So I started reading the Harry Potter series uh, back when it came out in 1997, when I was 12 years old. Um, so it's kind of been a really big part of my life. I grew up with the characters. Um, I came into kind of adulthood around the same sort of time that they did. Um, I went to see all of the films, went and got all of the books at, at midnight, you know, and uh, kind of tried to avoid all the people giving spoilers at one minute past midnight, running down the street saying, oh, guess what happened? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's been a, a really big part of my life. You know, I've gone to the, um, stu the Warner Brothers Studios in the UK a couple of times and kind of looked around the sets. And it's always been a really big part of my life. I already want to just desperately, like, jump forward where we talk about your idea of... of uh, hauntology and the way that this series haunts us. But mm -hmm. I think before we do that, probably we should find out what hauntology is. Oh, fine. Because, Lydia, I'd never heard the word before you sent us that pitch. So hauntology is... A fascinating field to me. Um, I, when I first came across it, I can't even remember when I first came across it, but when I did, I was instantly in love with it. Um, I've always kind of had a real obsession and interest with ghosts, not, not necessarily in a spiritual sense or anything like that, but just in the idea that I, I'm, I'm very obsessed with the idea of traces and ghostly kind of spectral presences and that kind of thing. And I've always found myself drawn to that as a kind of poetic device um, when, I've, when I've written and things like that. So when I came across the theory, I was completely transfixed by it. So yeah, I can tell you a little bit about hauntology. There's some very boring um, kind of, you know, French philosophy to start with, um, but it, it quickly moves into some very interesting applications as time goes on. I don't know if you guys have heard of the, what they call the spectral turn, which was a kind of big increase in the use of spectral kind of philosophy and critical thinking in academia around the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and it's really extended up until now. And today we're seeing kind of spectral analysis of absolutely everything. Um, I watched a video not long ago on a, on a hauntology of the Titanic and how the Titanic continues to haunt us today. Um, so it can be applied to absolutely everything. But rather than telling you what it can be applied to, Let's start at the beginning and I'll tell you a little bit about Jacques Derrida. Blah, 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 blah. 
Oh. You know, we love to start with a dead white French guy. We all love it. <laughs> Sometimes a dead white English guy, but like, Sometimes. you know. It's better if they're French. So Jacques Derrida um, was um, writing um, kind of all through um, the last century. And he wrote a book in the mid-90s called Spectres of Marx, which um, many people say was the, essentially the kind of the, the birth of ontology. Hauntology is is quite poorly defined, and I think that's quite integral to it. The fact that hauntology doesn't have strict boundaries is actually really useful to people who are kind of using it as a tool to examine things. So Jacques Derrida was writing, um, to a certain extent, in response to um, Francis Fukuyama and the idea of the end of history. I'm sure you guys have heard of that. <laughs> Marcel just made a face, and that face is on behalf of all of the listeners. <laughs> But also of us. Just pretend we don't know anything. Pretend. <laughs> so Francis Fukuyama basically um, wrote this idea that we are, in the mid-90s, we, we were at the end of history. Capitalism had won, neoliberalism was the, the default kind of success story, and that now we'd reached that point, that was, that was it. We, we, there was no more progression to make, and communism was dead. Oh, no. Um, oh, that's Aww. very sad. That's so sad. Yeah, and very, <laughs> and very wrong as well. Um, so, no. uh, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so Jacques Derrida um, talked about, um, in his book, Spectres of Marx, he talked about how communism haunts us, um, sort of, so even beyond this, this end of history where communism had, had um, you know, died and we were living in a full neoliberal hellscape. Communism <laughs> continued to kind of haunt us with this, with its absent presence. And this idea of absent presence is really kind of key to understanding hauntology. So mm -hmm. hauntology, um, as I, I'm sure you may have already figured out, is a pun on the word ontology, which is um, the study of being and haunting. And in French, if you pronounce it, it sounds the same both ways, ontology and hauntology, because they don't pronounce their H's. I love how many French theory puns can only be understood when you see them in writing, because there's no audible difference, like um, différence. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> just like a Derrida term? Yeah. It's just exactly, sounds exactly the same as différence. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. So, um, so the idea um, with, um, with Jacques Derrida's um, hauntology was it was really looking at how all things are because of the absences that haunt them. So, Hannah, you mentioned différence, um, and he talks a lot about traces as well, how we all have traces in us of the things that we aren't and that's how we kind of come to be subjects so we define ourselves by the things that we are not um, and he goes into a whole load of kind of academic jargon about signifier and signified and that kind of thing but that's not the most interesting part of hauntology i think the interesting thing is that it kind of opened the door for us to start looking at ghosts and specters as tools for the academic to mm -hmm. to think about things in different ways and to think about the ghostly and the way that ghosts can be used as a as a resource to kind of research mm -hmm. there's a long history of hauntology and i think it can broadly be broken down into two kind of separate strands the main kind of the main original kind of focus was as an analytical framework looking at um how the idea that traces are left upon us and how absent presences haunt us and how we define ourselves in response or as against certain other things. 
but there's also been re- there's also recently been a kind of application of hauntology to more cultural concerns and in particular kind of concerns around justice responsibility and ethics um, and those those mm. i think are the most interesting applications of hauntology so as you can probably imagine when we look at the the idea of the subject we we define the subject through a series of exclusions and through ex- through excluding things this goes on to take a more and more narrow shape and surprise surprise um, this has often meant that the main shape we kind of draw upon in society is the white male heterosexual person <laughs> And we exclude all of the other things who don't kind of meet those kind of, you know, those criteria. Yeah, this has come up in in previous episodes, I think, through a variety of the frameworks that we've looked at, like animal studies, which is about how, you know, the human is defined by the fact that it is not animal. The animal is defined by the fact that it is not human. Or like Orientalism is a huge example of of this at work, right? The, the, the sort of fantastical construction of the East as a projection of everything that the West wants to establish itself as not. Like, the West wants to establish itself as the site of rationality, so therefore the East must be the site of irrationality. And so it's that sort of construction of the self through a fantastical version of the other that is all of the things that the self is not. Absolutely. Very eloquently put, Anna. Yes. Um, so there's a lot more with, with Derrida. Um, there always is. That friggin' guy. But I think, like I said, I think the, the kind of really interesting work with ontology kind of comes after Derrida. Um, so people who took those original ideas of spectres and haunting and absent presences and started to apply them to more wide-ranging things. So we've seen um, hauntology over the years applied to all sorts of different things. So one of the kind of key contemporary, um, sort of more contemporary thinkers around hauntology is a guy called Mark Fisher, who was a um, kind of critical theorist, political theorist um, in the UK, who um, wrote a lot about the hauntology of music um, and how, and he wrote about this idea of the slow cancellation of the future and how we're haunted by the futures that we never arrived at. Mm-hmm. It's also been kind of taken up by um, writers kind of looking into um, the hauntology of blackness um, and kind of looking at the haunting effects of slavery um, upon kind of the contemporary psyche. There's also been some really good work around uh, sort of historical analysis and how we kind of how we exclude certain things from our tellings of the past in order to make sense of inequalities in the present and Avery Gordon um, wrote um, really beautifully about the um, kind of how past experiences affect the present often in really complicated ways and how the past haunts us in ways that we maybe couldn't have foreseen. Yeah, I haven't read Avery Gordon's book, but it reminds me a lot of Christina Sharp's work, which is her book In the Wake, is about the idea that the sort of past of slavery continues to play out in the present. And she's using wake as the sort of double metaphor of like the wake that a ship leaves, but also the wake as as mourning. And having not known this field of scholarship before, I didn't recognize the way in which she was engaging with it. But I think it's really there as she's she's really thinking about how the past continues to haunt the present. And it's really interesting you say that because a, a big strand of kind of hauntological work is the idea that every time we return to a text, we bring with us a number of other kind of things that have kind of culturally mm. influenced us. So we are, we read texts differently every time. 
and therefore the kind of the meaning kind of you know, of, of the author um, there's a big gap between us and the author and the text itself and there's all sorts of other things that fill those gaps and kind of start to haunt mm-hmm. our experience of reading which we will come to later when we talk about our experiences reading J.K. Rowling into 2022. Lydia, you mentioned the study of hauntology in relation to justice. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So one of the key concerns of hauntology is the idea of possibility and looking at how possibilities live and die and what that can mean for us when we're thinking about change and how we can change things. So a really, a really big kind of concern is looking at the futures that were dreamed of by societies and people in the past and looking at the particular points where those dreams weren't realised and understanding the points of rupture where dreams died and unearthing the, the people at those points in history. Wow, the points of rupture where dreams died is just... What a what a phrase. <laughs> My God. I mean, you're ma- immediately making me think of the history of like utopian narratives. Like, are we talking about that kind of thing? Like the way that people would write utopias and then and then what we do with reading utopias now that were written in the past that are not actually how things turned out at all. Yeah, so we might read a book that was set in the future in 2020 and we're in 2022 and none of the stuff in the book has happened. So mm-hmm. we we can say in a certain sense that we're haunted by the the, the cancelled future that was written about mm-hmm. back in those days. And you see the same thing with music as well. And so there was always this idea with culture that culture would continually regenerate and become, you know, we'd see newer and newer and newer things as time went on. But actually what's happened is this really big focus on nostalgia and recycling old things. Um, and it's mm-hmm. very rare, and it's very rare that really anything really new comes out anymore. Um, and we're continually presented with kind of recyclings of the 1970s, the 1980s. At the moment, we're kind of going through a recycling of the early 2000s and, and that kind mm. of <laughs> style and stuff like that. Closer to where I started, we're chasing after you. I'm falling even more in love with you. Which is very, very distressing for those of us who were teenagers in the early 2000s and are like, why are you wearing those stretchy plastic chokers again? Honestly, low-rise jeans can go to hell. (laughs) They can get right out of here. I mean, the, the first thing that I thought, Lydia, as you were talking, is the way that cyberpunk aesthetic of the past, which was a historical imagining of what what was the future then but is now our present, would look like is now being played out in, like, deliberate aesthetic decisions to make the present look more like past imaginings of the future, (laughs) right? So, like, we make things look cyberpunk because we think that's what now should look like Mm -hmm. or because we want to play with the weird fact that we are living in the future, even though it's the present. Did that make any sense? (laughs) It, It did make lots of sense, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a perfect example of it. Um, so some of the other ways that um, there's a kind of justice element to hauntology is looking at agency of absent presences. So with this, you may look at the role that people have had in history whose traces have completely disappeared from kind of cultural understandings. So with this, we may talk about um, there's been some really interesting works about the role of women in largely male academic spaces and how often 
writers' wives would work as typists and and kind of secretaries and that. Um, And so their presence haunts the work of their husbands, but they have kind of essentially died to to the history. They don't exist in the same way that the men who wrote the history did. Um, And Avery Gordon um, talks about this in a really beautiful way. She talks about visibility as being a complex system of permission and prohibition. Um, And this is where the idea of seething presences come from, that the things that are kind of made absent through history as it's being written seethe at the edges of history and haunt history in its retellings. Hmm. Mm. Sarah Mesley, who is a a cultural critic who writes about the cultural history of hair, she's written a series of pieces. They're so good. I really recommend all of them. But she has one about the new Emily Dickinson show and how Emily Dickinson's hair like is represented in that show and what that has to do with like the larger cultural history of Emily Dickinson as a figure. But there's a lot sort of playing through her writing about that, about how much sort of major canonical writers work is haunted by these systems of labor, particularly slave labor that underpin the possibilities of the way that they lived and the way that like white women, for example, were imagining freedom Mm -hmm. in a time when their freedom was built on an infrastructure of the profound unfreedom, particularly of black women. Mm -hmm. And that that then becomes the sort of trace that has to be there in the work when you're thinking about it. This is also... You see this in a lot of readings of um, Jane Austen, particularly Mansfield Park, because it's sort of really passingly referenced that the rich uncle is rich because he's got colonies abroad or like a plantation abroad. And it just sort of becomes this reminder that like underpinning all of those ballrooms and all of those parlors and all of that, all of those sort of idealized, even fetishized images of what the past looks like underpinning it is the system of labor and economics that was profoundly violent. And, and increasingly, we're, we're seeing a kind of a real emergence of this in, in today's society with the existence of, you know, very precarious work places and people working on zero hours contracts, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of micro jobs. And um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the idea of ghost kitchens and kitchens that exist purely to make food for other places. And, you know, there's this increasingly ghostly kind of society that underpins a lot of these luxuries and things that we take for granted, like you say, Hannah. I don't want to take us off track, but I'm thinking about what you were talking about, Lydia, with respect to ontology and imagining futures that didn't come to pass. And I'm thinking about like middle-class white women's imaginings of the future when they were writing utopias and how like it's actually probably in a lot of ways really good that a lot of those things didn't come to pass. You know, like Aaron P. Mukherjee describes providential genocide in order to create this, like, these futures where everybody's white. (laughs) It's great. We don't talk about how. And yet, while it's great that these futures haven't come to pass, the white supremacy that informs these texts is still very much with us. And so, like, how do we reconcile, like, being haunted by things that aren't dead? Oh my god, can you be haunted by something that's not dead? Lydia, 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think that we might kind of come to this when we talk um, a little bit about Voldemort and his role mm-hmm. in the books and how he his ideas persist and haunt the present, even though some of his kind of idealised society didn't come to pass. So we can absolutely be haunted by things that aren't dead. Um, and I think that that ties into what we were talking about earlier about how everything is defined by the things that it isn't. Um, and we increasingly kind of exclude things and reach this narrower and narrower kind of sense of a subject. Mm. Marcel was just talking about the idea of sort of good pasts and bad pasts or good futures and bad futures. And you mentioned earlier on that there is a connection between hauntology and ethics. Can we talk a little bit more about how ethics plays in? Absolutely. So as, as we mentioned, uh, hauntology kind of looks at the idea of the subject and how it is comprised of these kind of absences and these traces of others. And uh, a hauntological ethics is interested in looking at how we extend our ethics outwards to include more and more marginal people, not by bringing them into the fold, as it were, but by redefining our idea of ethics. Mm. So hauntology is not interested in good and bad, but is interested in, like, in responsibility. So the, the, the question is not how we extend the right to become a moral subject to people on the margins, but it's the idea that we need to rethink what it means to be a, an ethical subject in the first place. What does that, because that's a sort of school of ethics I, I feel generally familiar with, right? This sort of pushing back against like Kantian models where it's like, here's what the rational subject is and we need to extend our idea of who counts as a rational subject you know, pushing back against that to like feminist ethics of care, which aren't interested in these definitions of the rational or moral subject. But how does that connect to haunting? What is the link there? So I think it's about the idea of of monstrosity and otherness um, and the things against which heteronormative, hegemonic kind of society is defined. And it's about increasing our scope of who's included in in our ethics. So it sounds like hauntology isn't interested in binaries. And so my my very question like can you be haunted by something that's not dead? Well like there it sounds like in hauntology it's not about like what's alive and what's dead, but like what's with us. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, there, there's a big idea in hauntology of kind of arriving and the revenant and things that continually return in in different or similar forms and they're constantly with us and, and always arriving and it's that point of disruption whereby we can where we hit that point of possibility and if we embrace the the kind of the arriving revenant then it opens up a whole scope of possibilities for ethics. Oh, oh, embrace the arising revenant incredible i like marcel the way you got there at the like not alive not dead not good not bad right because isn't the ghost essentially a liminal figure Mm -hmm. that is about sort of the rupture between the past and present the rupture between life and death the rupture between presence and absence like when i think about classic ghost stories i think about how they are all about the the breaking down of the boundaries that people want to put Mm-hmm. tidally around categories of being and ghosts are always there to be like psych <laughs> <laughs> no boundaries for you sticking my hand through a wall 
even in the sorting chat when we were like, what's your relationship to ghosts? And it's like, well, I don't, I don't, is it like, I think, I think this, but also maybe it's different. And it seems like that's just in the nature of haunting and the nature of ghosts is there's, there's so much room for different experiences and to like address and take, take seriously different experiences. And I think that's one of the kind of really important things uh, of using ghosts and haunting as a critical tool is that it invites that playfulness. It invites that lack of clear boundary and asks us to spend time in those kind of disruptions, those confusions, because those disruptions and confusions themselves can be an important way of changing how we see something and embracing things that we hadn't considered before. So that playfulness is is kind of politically powerful in and of itself. Oh, oh my God. This has been so thrilling. This whole time, Lydia, I keep thinking, like, there is this part of me that has been missing academic conferences because I miss the chance to learn new things from interesting people. Mm-hmm. And the degree to which this segment has scratched that itch that I'm just <laughs> like, oh, yes, teach me things I didn't know. and now i'm really excited to apply it are we ready to apply it yeah speaking of playful applications let's do it i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is truly no ghostlier sound than the exam proctor telling you to put down your pencils. Except, of course, for owls. Those hoots are ghostly as heck. (laughs) Okay, so Lydia, you have prepared some sort of jumping off points, prompting questions for us to begin to sort of playfully apply hauntology to this book, and I guess the series in general. Um, So where should we start? I think we should start by considering what the absent presences in Hogwarts might be. The first one that jumps out to me is house elves, Mm -hmm. in part because of the way that in the previous segment we were framing the conversation around the hidden infrastructure of labor, Mm -hmm. but also the way that the series itself, like, doesn't tell us about the house elves until Hermione finds out about the house elves. Like, we don't know until the characters know. Mm -hmm. And then once the characters know our whole understanding of how things happen at Hogwarts shifts and we have to sort of readjust our worldview of like what is possible through magic Mm -hmm. as a result of knowing that the house elves are there. And there's that, the book where Hermione realizes that the house elves are there is the book where she realizes that Hogwarts a history is an incomplete history Mm -hmm. and begins to understand that like historical text strategically erase certain parts of the past and she's so mad absolutely and and i think learning about the existence of the house elves and their role within hogwarts i don't know about you guys but for me it prompted me to think 
what else has been hidden mm-hmm. from us and what else has been done to different kinds of magical creatures what history has been erased and what role did these different kind of creatures play in the shaping of the magical society that we see mm-hmm. today in Hogwarts and i mean that's the thing about a lot of these gaps and reader intervention in the text too right like on the one hand things that are kept from us erase infrastructures of like oppression and at the same time readers who are able to imagine alternatives are able to find, you know, find themselves, find their people, find new forms of justice and whatnot by digging, by digging up those, digging up those gaps and, uh, and imagining new ethical approaches to things because just as the books are, they're unsatisfying. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And I think one thing that's really interesting, and and I'm, I'm really kind of interested in this idea of Half-Blood Prince in particular being the book in which Harry begins to embrace the ghostly, the Mm, spectral. mm. You know, there's lots of him delving into the past, into memories. And and in particular, what I find interesting is that as Harry delves into these kind of historical narratives and hears the voices of people who perhaps we wouldn't have ever heard from usually, Harry's worldview and his sense of ethics you see it begin to expand. So he begins to feel more empathy for the house elves um, in, in a way that he didn't before. And that is just through having exposure to their particular histories told by themselves um, or having the opportunity to kind of create their own narratives away from the kind of main narrative that has been told. Harry begins to widen his sense of what, who he's responsible for and who he should care for. And I think that's that's a kind of really interesting aspect of when you start looking at these kind of ghostly infrastructures, that it does force us to encounter things that we hadn't kind of considered and, and consider what it might mean ethically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is something so interesting about Dumbledore's insistence that Harry needs to trace through Voldemort's past. You know, I wasn't thinking of those figures in the pensive as ghosts but they are like a lot of those people are are dead and we are seeing most of those people are dead specifically because they are people Voldemort killed mm-hmm. and so we are having these encounters with ghosts and Dumbledore's insistence that this return to or retracing of the past is vital to understanding what's going on because Voldemort himself in the present is somebody who is actively haunted by all of these pieces of his past. Mm -hmm. Like, he's literally made of his ghosts. (laughs) His power lies in the creation of his horcruxes, and the Mm -hmm. creation of his horcruxes is contingent on his murdering people. Mm -hmm. And so those ghosts are part of him, which Mm -hmm. we also saw in the wand thing. Priori Priori incantatum. Yeah, but like <laughs> the ghosts are there in the wand. Yeah. I mean, he rebuilds his body with a bone from his dead dad. Who he murdered. That's metal. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is um, perhaps the point where Harry Potter begins to fail in its in the way that it handles this um this widening of responsibility. So when we delve back through Voldemort's history, we begin to understand some of the material conditions that led to him developing in the way that he did. And and Harry even at one point kind of feels what may be a twinge of, of sympathy for him or a twinge of regret. Mm-hmm. And, and Voldemort's material conditions are 
are pretty difficult. You know, he, he grew up, um, you know, he was born of, of, you know, of abuse and kind of, you know, difficult circumstances for his family. He lived in an orphanage. Um, and where the book could have been different is that when it, when we find these kind of things out about Voldemort, we could have taken it in a completely different way and said, how can we prevent those material conditions from happening again to lead mm-hmm. to another Voldemort in the future? But instead, the book doesn't do that. It favours a return to the status quo. And this is where I think where we talked earlier about how ontology encourages not good and bad, but responsibility and ethics. The book teases at the edges of that, but then returns to treating Voldemort as good or bad and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the the way that the series keeps showing us how much Harry is like Tom Riddle mm-hmm. and really presenting us with these parallels and insisting that we spend time with these parallels, right? That Tom Riddle kind of looks like Harry. And then, you know, they had a really similar past. You know, they both grew up in these really difficult circumstances. Like, there is this the sense that we are meant to see these parallels, the past of Tom Riddle sort of impressing itself over the present mm-hmm. of Harry. And that haunting does suggest a different kind of ethics than the text ultimately settles on, right? One that is about seeing the monster, understanding where the monster is coming from, understanding that we are not fully products of our past, but that our past continue to to live on in us in ways that that shape and inform what becomes possible for us. But instead, it it becomes this like almost sort of exorcism, right? That what has to happen, and this is thinking forward a little bit to the next book, that like Harry has to die in order to exercise the Voldemort that is in him mm-hmm. in order for things to return. Like you've got to shunt the ghosts out rather than making space for the ghosts. This is making me really want to do a bonus episode uh, where we talk about intergenerational trauma, you know, building off of hauntology as a foundation. Uh, anyway, okay. Lydia, do you have more questions for us? I do. Um, so in, in The Half-Blood Prince, Harry's life is interrupted by the disrupting presence of another absent presence in the form of his potions book. And Marcel, I know you were very interested in talking about Marginalia last series. Um, so I, I wondered what your views were on whether Harry is haunted by The Half-Blood Prince and how Marginalia can often act as a, as a haunting of its own. I am in tingles thinking about marginalia as haunting oh my god so this is not an academic capital a academic response this is a capital f feeling response but i love the idea of the half-blood prince via marginalia as a kind of ghost who's you know sort of wreaking havoc on harry's life and do you think that the specter is a friend or a guide and it turns out that the specter doesn't have any interest in you whatsoever <laughs> mm. oh my goodness mm. there's a really interesting point in the book where the presence of the half-blood prince through the marginalia really challenges Harry and Hermione's relationship to truth and to convention. So at one point, Hermione is very, very interested in trying to work out who the Half-Blood Prince was. And where does she go to get this information? She goes to the library. She, when confronted with the idea of marginalised voices, 
um, and kind of inviting in those voices that have been made absent, she retreats to the kind of comfort of kind of, you know, established mm-hmm. history. Whereas at this point in the book, Harry is increasingly wanting to embrace the Half-Blood Prince and is convinced that he's developing a relationship with this with this figure that's haunting him through the book. And it really draws out these differences. And, and this speaks to what I was talking about earlier of Harry in this book really starting to invite in ghosts into his life. And and we see this in so many other ways. Luna becomes a a significant character in this book, and she is somebody whose world is is haunted by lots of marginalised things. Um, So we we could talk about the Thestrals, we could talk about the Raxperts and the Nargles. But more interestingly, I think, you know, Luna literally wears something called Spectre Specs. And I think that is the perfect summation of kind of how haunted this book is. You immediately made me think of in the second book, when Harry first realizes that he can speak Parseltongue and the way he's hearing this voice coming from the walls saying, kill, kill. And his friends are like, hearing voices is not a good sign. You need to shut it out. And then again, when he starts dreaming Voldemort's dreams, he's told, dreaming somebody else's dreams is not good. You need to shut it out. And Harry is told over and over again, right? Then the Half-Blood Prince, mysterious marginalia is not a good thing. You've got to shut it out. And every time he refuses. Oh my God. He never, ever does what everybody else around him is telling him, mm-hmm. where they're like, shut out mysterious voices, shut out these spectral presences, draw walls around things. They try to teach him occlumency so he can draw walls around his brain. And he's like, no. Do you know why? This is just occurring to me right now. It's because he grew up thinking that his parents died in a car crash. And all the while, the Dursleys were hiding from him his actual familial past. And so the only person who he can trust is himself and his own, like, experiences, right? Because he had had those dreams with, like, the green flash, and it was like, I guess it was from the car crash, but, like, that's weird. I mean, also, he grew up as a ghost haunting the Dursleys' house, He was literally in a cupboard under the stairs, and when people came over, he had to hide. Lydia, you're breaking our brains wide open. This is so fun. Right? So that becomes like what is seen as Harry's recurring failure if we think about it through this idea of like an expanding and hauntological ethics. We can see a very different sort of relationship emerging where Harry is open to these spectral voices, you know, befriends Luna can start seeing the Thestrals, begins to empathize for the for the house elves, and loves the Half-Blood Prince. The other connection I was thinking of is if we go back, Lydia, to what you were saying about being haunted by other versions of the future, the other really interesting thing about the Half-Blood Prince is that the revelation that it's Snape then haunts us with another version of who Snape might have been if his life had turned out differently, the teacher he could have been, the mentor he could have been, the friend he could have been. Because then you you see this other version of him that is gone because Snape in the present is not this person anymore. But that Snape is made present through the marginalia. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is. (laughs) I think one thing that's really interesting is um, the way that these things are policed so heavily throughout the book Luna is continually kind of policed 
away from you know have her views are kind of every time she talks people roll their eyes and mm-hmm. sort of treat her as if she's this oh you know she's just a silly Luna um, and there's an interesting bit when they visit Diagon Alley at the beginning of the book where Mr Weasley kind of you know sees somebody selling these amulets and, and all this kind of stuff and he even though he's not at work he polices the presence of these kind of you know these ghostly kind of you know objects Throughout the book, there's a real policing, and yet the people doing that policing are really, really happy and content to evoke their own versions of the past. So we see in this book a real, you know, Horace Slughorn comes back. We hear a lot about Harry's family and, um, you know, the Order of the Phoenix. And Marcel, you mentioned Priore Incantatum. So I just couldn't say the word properly. <laughs> Priori and But it's not that people are afraid of evoking the past. It's just that there's a particular version of the past that people are happy with because it explains their present more effectively than the way that, you know, the thing, the, how the other things do. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with a friend recently who had watched the Hogwarts anniversary special. And she was like, actually, it was really fun. You should consider watching it. And I was like, no, we've taken a pretty hard stance because of the podcast in particular. You know, I've got a lot of space in my life for like the ambivalent and complex relationship we have to culture and its discontents (laughs) and its discontents and the sort of implications of supporting certain kinds of culture and what that means, etc., you know, I'm, I don't think it's as simple as, like, you're voting with your dollars, so if you see a Chris Pratt movie, it means you love Chris Pratt and believe in what he believes in. Like, no, I love dinosaurs, and he just keeps showing up in the same movies as them. Anyway, but I think because of the podcast, because it is a thing we make money off of, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to just not be doing anything that gives JK money or that encourages other people to do so. Anyway, she was like... Well, actually, you would like it. J.K. Rowling's basically not in there at all. They only use interviews with her from the past, and mostly she's not in it. Mostly they've just cut her out. And I was like, okay, that's fascinating, though, because they can't cut her out financially. Mm -mm. Like, she's making every bit as much money still off all of these things. And so what they're doing is disappearing her as much as possible from the public face of Harry Potter as an industry Mm -hmm. so that people can continue to uncomplicatedly consume this material that continues to make her a billionaire over and over and over again without having to actually contend with her as a contemporary figure. Mm -hmm. So they're turning her into a ghost. They certainly are. And I think... um... As a ghost, she does some really interesting things. So I I reread the Half Blood Prince um, before this episode, and it's so fascinating that when you read the books now, and I haven't read them for a long time because you know, like you, I kind of you know withdrew a little bit from kind of consuming Harry Potter related things, apart from which please, of course. But rereading it again, J.K. Rowling as the author disrupts the text a lot things Mm. that perhaps you would have glossed over when you read it when you were younger suddenly take on new meaning because they're haunted by the things that you know jk rowling has said and done in in this day and age the other aspect that i think is very interesting is reading harry potter as a 12 year old 
I had and, and growing up with it, I my my politics weren't maybe quite as well. You know, I wasn't as well versed with politics as a twelve year old. Yeah, that's fair. That's reasonable. <laughs> same, same, Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 the books spoke of a of a future of acceptance and tolerance and and that kind of thing. And you know, growing up as a queer person, Harry Potter, you know, spoke of this world of of you know where. The person who lives in the closet, and we've heard this before. It's a kind of tried and tested kind of story. But you know, you relate to the person who lives in the closet and how he's accepted in this world of, of tolerance and understanding. And the vision of the future created by those books was one of possibility and hope. And now, when we read the books now, knowing what we know, it's a really bizarre, uncanny experience because we remember how we felt when we read it when we were younger, but we don't feel that same way now. So we have this dual kind of experience when we're reading the books and it's really difficult to make sense of and very confusing when you're reading it because you're like, I love this and it's comforting Mm -hmm. and wholesome because it makes me feel like I'm young again and the world is full of possibility. And then it also makes you feel sad because of what, has happened since Mm -hmm. then. Yes, because it's one of those possible imaginings of the future that didn't come to pass. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a kind of Snape Half-Blood Prince reversal, where like you think that the books were written by this trusted figure, and then you find out that the trusted figure has just been so hateful all along, but just didn't have the platform to expound, to wax poetic on things that are none of her goddamn business. Yeah, I'm so interested in that way that you framed reading, I think, in the in the last segment, Lydia, as this, like, you're bringing yourself into the reading and bringing these sort of other contexts to bear. And of course, when we reread, we encounter not only the text itself via who we are now, but also the trace of the reading that we had of the text previously, which is why rereading can be such a comforting experience Mm -hmm. that it sort of returns you maybe to a prior time in your life that felt safer, simpler, more secure. I think a lot of people have been doing a lot of rereading and rewatching and re-listening through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That like sort of almost ritualistic act of just returning to texts that are familiar and the way that those return us to a moment in our life that maybe felt safer and more secure, you know, it's something I think a lot of us have been embracing. But then, of course, there is also that uncanny aspect of it, right? That that ghostly trace of, of who I used to be. And it makes me think about this, just this thing that happens to me with podcasts, which I think is quite common. I listen to so many podcasts that happens to me all the time that I'll be listening. The first time I listen to a podcast episode, I'll be like going for a walk or biking somewhere, doing something. And where I am physically in that moment imprints on that podcast so that then when I re-listen to that podcast, I return viscerally to where I was at that moment when I first listened. And it causes some of the most intense forms of sense memory that I have. Hmm. Is like, I listened to a particular episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and I remember biking through a small town in Ontario on this bike trip I did with some friends like and I can mm-hmm. feel like I can feel it in this really intense way so that like my past self is now haunting that podcast episode such that when I go back and listen to that podcast episode I I meet her again 
And it is something about the way that we relate to art that that presence of my past self in it reminds me that I am probably also in this moment imprinting my present self on it. That like the boundaries between me and the culture that I consume is much more porous than I necessarily realize in the moment. I have that exact experience. I've never heard anybody say it before. So it's really amazing to hear you kind of phrase it in that way. It's incredible. I I guess another question for you guys, I wonder um, what you think about, does Harry Potter, the the series, and and do its fans haunt J.K. Rowling now? Mm. What impact does does that have upon her present sense of self, do you think, and her position as a celebrity? I would love so much if every Christmas Eve she is visited by three critical thinking, either like <laughs> fans or cultural critics or writers who are like, Joanne, you have before you another opportunity. We're giving you another chance, Joe. We're going to take you on a journey. <laughs> oh, my God. I keep thinking about the way that fandom haunts this series. Mm-hmm. Fan theories, fan responses, always, as I'm reading, are always haunting the text. They're always haunting the way that the series as a whole sort of moves through the world. And I wonder sometimes if what we see in Rowling's sort of emphatic insistence on reinstating very specific facts about the wizarding world Mm -hmm. is a sign of her own haunting by the fandom. Mm -hmm. That the fandom is constantly there being like, this book is full of gaps, and so we're going to do all kinds of wild shit with it. We are just going to take it in every direction we want. And obviously that is great for the property Mm -hmm. because it has created this sort of massive cultural energy and weight around it. But also, you see her constantly as a public figure attempting to stamp out those alternatives. That's right. Attempting to say, nope, here is the official, here is the official answer mm-hmm. to what is going on. People were just pooping in the halls. <laughs> and she doesn't exclusively say no, right? Like, she cherry picks. So if there's a fan theory that she's into, she will come out and say, yes, you could read Hermione as Black. Why not? But then somebody's like, okay, but like Remus Lupin and Sirius Black, though, they were lovers, right? No, no. Absolutely no, not. Absolutely not. No. And I think this this reminds me of the um, the point in the book that we talked about earlier where you see that kind of disjunction between Harry and Hermione. Hermione is keen to explain things away by kind of, you know, relying upon establishment history. Mm-hmm. So she'll go to the library, she'll delve through these books. And for me, that is rolling, kind of setting these kind of encyclopedias of, of kind of facts about the series. And the the fandom is our, our Harry, kind of experiencing these memories, delving, widening his sense of kind of ethics and responsibility. And it's that push and pull between the two, isn't it? It's yeah. the kind of the hauntologists and the kind of, you know, the, the people who are kind of trying to keep history as a kind of an inert thing that doesn't contain multitudes and ghosts and stuff. I mean, I feel like the fandom is also Luna, right? Just being like, look, Nargles. And everybody else is like, there's no Nargles. And she's like, prove it. Everything's magic. You couldn't see Thestrals last year. 
So how do you know that there aren't Nargles and you just haven't been through the specific life experience that makes them visible to you? Indeed, some of you still can't see Thestrals. Like, come on. Come on! (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Me picturing a less chill version of Luna that's just constantly being like, come on! (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, we are getting very close to the end of Owls, but before we do, Lydia, will you tell us about the Room of Requirement? So much like the the house elves and the squibs and the chamber of secrets, that the the room of requirement is part of Hogwarts that is literally hidden away that we we don't see, but it forms an in, intrinsic part of Hogwarts's historical development. And when we visit the the room of requirement throughout the series, we see that there's literally collections of possibly centuries worth of other students' belongings. Mm-hmm. And and in particular, what I find interesting is that it, it contains things that people wanted to hide because they disrupt the order of things in Hogwarts. So they're things that they would have got in trouble for having, and they put them in this repository. And I think there's something there around the room of requirement containing this kind of suppressed rage and this suppressed revolutionary spirit of the students who rail against the the hegemony of, of Hogwarts. And I think it's very interesting that the Room of Requirement plays such a significant role in, in this book because it's where Draco is able to allow in external forces and is able to connect the dots up between various things that he had kind of thought about before. So Draco's absent for a lot of this book, but he's constantly present in Harry's mind. Mm. And a lot of the time that he's absent, he's in this room of requirement. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, the room of requirement, much like Peeves mm-hmm. as well in the series, acts as this kind of repository for the revolutionary mm-hmm. spirit of Hogwarts students, which is never really fully explored. We we, we have it a little bit with, with the Weasley twins, and, and with Peeves, but this revolutionary spirit is is not really explored very much. But the Room of Requirement, I think, I would love to go digging through there and look through all of the different things that are in there and start to piece together uh, the hidden history of the students of Hogwarts, you know, the kind of historiography of Hogwarts students and their lost loves and their lost rebellions and the things that they wanted to hide and, and all of that kind of stuff. That I just feels so rich to me and... I think there's so much there. What do you guys think? Do you think that you would be able to find it, though, if what you wanted was to find the things that people had hidden when the very function of the room is to hide them? (laughs) (laughs) The fact that the room itself responds to need and thus only opens when you need somewhere to hide things, but that that need then becomes, like, it is so interesting that that particular need of the room causes you to encounter these deep buried strata of previous Hogwarts students, because that isn't the case with other needs of the room. Other needs of the room don't lead you into, right? It leads you into a room full of chamber pots, or it leads you into a room that is really well set up for practicing your magic lessons. Mm -hmm. But if you have a particular need that must resonate through the history of the school, 
such that it unlocks this room that is the same room for students over history so that you, you know, come into this shared space. And the fact that Harry can't get there, that he knows it's there and he's just pacing the hall outside of it over and over again, knowing that there is this buried history, but unable to unlock it. I, I think the room would, would kind of be one of the things that answers the question, what seeves at the edges of Hogwarts? It, it's literally within the, the boundaries of the building itself, seething and constantly there, but, you know, people skirt around it, around the edges of it, and I think, like so many parts of Hogwarts, it's constantly ready to just disrupt the... You know, someone walking through the corridor may have a little thought in their head and then the room of requirement becomes available to them and it comes when you're not expecting it perhaps and perhaps because Harry's kind of looking for it that's the time that it doesn't come but it's when you kind of aren't expecting it much like a ghost may come and arrive to haunt us the room of requirement operates in a similar way I, I think it's absolutely fascinating and I would love to read a uh, a kind of a, an encyclopedia of all of the different things that we find in a room of requirements. And just, you know, there's so much you could do with that. I mean, I feel like you should write that. This also makes me think of the way we talked about the room of requirement in our episode with Amanda Allen, when she was talking about how frequently the room of requirement emerges in fan fiction mm. and how it's particularly used as a space where things that can't be contained by the canonical texts can happen there, including like it's used as a space that is kind of outside of the moral and legal logics of the text. So it, again, that's another way in which it's seething at the edge of Hogwarts, that it's also pointing us towards the way that fans are always trying to sort of push against the edges of Hogwarts, that like people love this school and love to fantasize about coming to the space, but then want to, you know, want to be like those students who are at the school want to be pushing against its edges, want, you know, have this sort of discontent with what is happening, right? And even, you know, the way that that Lydia was saying, like, that you long for this inventory of everything that's in there, right? That it's like the presence of the fans themselves as part of that, like, seething, discontented mass of youth is like, they're in the room of requirement, finding their way in through the disappearing cupboard and like sneaking into Hogwarts <laughs> and fucking shit up. Coach says it's where the fans haunt the series as she weeps. <laughs> <laughs> the room is also like actually apolitical, right? Like it is as willing to let Draco let a bunch of Death Eaters in as it is to give like members of the Order of the Phoenix and Dumbledore's army, like a place to hide in the next book. You know, like it doesn't care. The, the room doesn't care about good or bad. It cares about inviting in and this playfulness and this kind of embracing of the, the marginal and the hidden and the disruptive, um, which I think kind of, you know, kind of circles back really nicely to kind of what we were talking about, about, you know, Jacques Derrida and, and the kind of early kind of stages of, of, of hauntology as, an, as a kind of analytical tool. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Marcel and I are both just making that noise we make when we, when we have been deeply critically satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I love a good reading. <laughs> this has been such an absolute pleasure, Lydia. My God. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for inviting me on. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to have been able to kind of explore these kind of shadowy realms with you. Oh, I mean, I'm going to be thinking about hauntology for a long time. Maybe forever. Maybe this is my new field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's almost as if it's going to haunt you, Anna. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes by visiting the podcast section of the Wilfrid Laurier University Press website or, as always, on your podcast listening platform of choice. Special thanks to Wilfrid Laurier University Press for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We are endlessly grateful to all of you for helping us to make this show financially sustainable. Thanks to your support, we'll soon be able to provide transcripts for all of our episodes, old and new. Patrons can look forward to more of that solid gold bonus content, including some new Patreon-exclusive merch in the weeks to come. Check out patreon.com slash ohwitchplease if you want to learn more. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me laughing on the bus, playing games with the faces. Oh! (laughs) I spent a long time trying to find, like, a song lyric for this one. I think the man in the gabardine suit is a spy. (laughs) I said, be careful, his bow tie is really a camera. Anyway. We're cool. (laughs) Thanks this week to the one, the only, the formidable Rabinkind22. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then... Later, witches! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.